Welcome to We Fish ASA, the best darn fishing show on the radio or the internet in the entire USA. I am Steve Sarley. My partner is Dave Kranz. We Fish ASA is always pleased to offer you conversation with the most interesting, the most informative, the most entertaining, as well as some of the biggest names in the world of fishing. We Fish ASA is brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association, in particular St. Croix, the best rods on earth. Calcutta, makers of a line of products that fit your fishing lifestyle and passion, and Daiwa. We've got your bass covered, Daiwa. We Fish ASA presents a new episode of our one-hour podcast each and every week. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out our website, wefishasa.com. We Fish ASA is recorded by Dave and myself at two separate locations in northern Illinois. We ship the audio down to Lando Lakes, Florida, to a place called Berserk Productions, where we find our executive producer and father-to-be, Mr. Brad Nearman. Hey, Brad, hope everything is going all right with Olivia and yourself. Uh, look forward to seeing you again in the near future, hopefully. On today's show, we welcome Dan Johnston from St. Croix, talking about moving bait versus uh, bottom contact baits when, where, and why you use each of them. Spence Petros, Hall of Famer, will be with us about talking about how he got into the industry. And then I'm going to be with uh, Jeremy Smith. Man, this guy can catch just about everything out there. You see him all the time on Linder Media, Linder's Angling Edge. He's a true superstar in the world of sport fishing. Be happy to talk to Jeremy Smith. But first, let me turn it over to my partner, Dave Kranz. Who's going to bring on our good friend, Dan Johnston. Take it away, David. As Steve said, I am Dave Kranz. This is the We Fish ASA podcast, and this segment is brought to you by St. Croix, the best rods on earth. And once again, welcome back, Dan Johnston. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, always good to have you on, Dan. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about something that uh, I, I think we both don't think we've talked about this uh moving baits versus bottom contact baits and you know why we would use them and where we would use them and when and um i think it's a great topic uh you know there's uh uh because there is a difference isn't there there is and we can talk about this for a lot of species you know it certainly applies yeah. for walleye uh, sure. it applies to crappie too you know we don't really do a lot of bottom contact with crappie but we do for bluegill but you know i, I think this is probably more targeted for bass and i think a lot of people could take this and you know take it out to other species as well but you know to to first define it it's really literally what it is i mean there are moving baits that make contact with the bottom no doubt like a deep a lot of times we've talked about crankbait fishing at least for me i'll intentionally throw a crankbait that's deeper than the depth of the water intentionally to get it to bang the bottom but that's not really what we're talking about here. You know, moving bait would be your crankbait, spinnerbait, uh, lipless bait, um, you know, anything like that. And then bottom contact, we're talking about more like a jig or a worm or something like shaky head or something like that. That's kind of where I was thinking of uh, taking this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, so so uh, when would you want to use one or the other? What what's the uh, what's the advantage? And and you know. You know, why is that better? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, because one thing that and I, you know, I know, Dave, you and I always come up with our topics really late in the game for these things. And it's funny because a lot of times we don't put a lot of time in preparing what we're going to talk about, which makes it cool because we're talking from the heart. But I would say this. It depends on a lot of things. So there, there's times 
first first thing people probably think is time of the year and that's absolutely true now they'll bite a moving bait in very very cold water but only certain ones like for bass the, the wiggle wart or uh a lipless bait, uh, spinner bait, bladed jig, they'll bite in cold water, things like that. But they'll bite that moving bait throughout the year, and they'll bite the bottom contact bait throughout the year too, but we fish it different in terms of, for example, a jig, I'll put a lot more cadence on it, stroke it a lot more in warmer water than I will when in cold water. But there's other things that affect it too. Like, for example, there's times of the year where you can throw a moving bait till the cows come home and catch them until a cold front comes in. Now you're water temperature hasn't changed that much and it's the same time of year but all of a sudden you got to hit them in the face with it and then you've got to go with something that's more target specific and you'll go to a shaky head or a worm or something and put it in their PO box 10 times you know to get a bite so that's another example the water clarity can absolutely determine it Um, and there's times we want to also make a bottom contact bait loud uh, to you know, in, in dirty water when we're trying to bite, so there's a lot going on with it. But really, it goes back to that old adage: you have to let the fish tell you what to do. You know, there's certain general rules of thumb that apply, and to me, it is the bait, the forage that they're most keyed on. Um, you know, when you get that water in the 50s and crayfish start to molt and they really get on that bite good and the rocks are warming up, then I'm flipping the heck out of a jig or a tube. Um, you get shad-based fish in the spring or the fall or uh, around the shad spawn and things like that, then that moving bait becomes gold. So a lot of it to me, Dave, is bait-driven, um, but the other factors I mentioned certainly come into play as well. Yeah, and, and I think uh, you hit it on the head there. The moving bait is more when the fish are active and they're chasing things, and the bottom is a slower where you got to put it right in front of them and leave it there for a while where, you know, if you run a moving bait by those fish, you might buy it, run it by 100, and, and you'd be lucky to get one of them to hit it just because they're not in that uh, uh, frame of mind where they're they're ready to, uh, you know, hit something like that. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, you said water temperature, you said bait, you said how, you know, how active they are. Um, is there a general rule of thumb, you know, other than the fact, like you said, lipless baits, they, they work in colder waters or early and late. That doesn't mean they work, don't work during the, the warm temperatures either, because I, I used to throw a rattle trap or a lipless bait only early and late in the year. And now I throw it all year round, especially when we get a little wind. And sometimes choosing the right bait is, is I think, based on the conditions. It is based on the conditions. It's based on, uh, like we said, time of year, water clarity, what they're feeding on. Um, but I would, I would add, boy, I would add one thing to what we've said here. You know, the moving bait, when they're more active and they're chasing, we call the strike zone, you know, where they can see it or they're going to get it or you're covering, wa- covering water is a classic example, like high clear water. You absolutely want to try that but there's other times where you're throwing a moving bait even to get a bite in tough conditions and there's one of the best patterns of all time is banging something into something whether it's a bladed jig or a big square bill is the best example i could give even a cold front they'll bite that because you're kind of making them bite it's much more of a reaction strike but you really in that scenario you're trying to make contact with something and either that's your line going over something that makes that thing hunt and misdirect off to the side or the actual physical square part of that bill banging off of something and they hit it when it's relaxed and that is something that believe it or not 
not, a lot of times I'll go to first even before I start flipping because you can get fish to bite by reactions and the jerk bait's a great example of that too in a cold front situation. So, you know, it, a, li- a lot of it is determined by the things that we're talking about, but it's really important to understand that both work really year-round, but there are certain times where we really want to put our hat on when we should key on one or the other. And again, to me, it goes back to time of year and bait would be the two things. I mean, in the fall, I'm pretty much starting with a moving bait for sure because they're trying to find them. Because I know when I find them, I'm going to find a lot of them. Now, granted, if you catch eight or 10, then you can flip another three. But, you know, I was just talking to a guy the other night who was practicing for a tournament, asking me a bunch of questions about certain things in the fall and stuff. And, man, I'm talking about buzz bait and spinner bait and, uh, you know, things like that and cover water till you get that bite. Try to apply it to other areas and then try to slow down and catch your remaining fish. And it seems to be pretty solid. Yeah, and I think that's that's good. Sometimes you're using that uh, faster bait as a search bait to, f- to figure it out. But I, I liked your point about bumping the cover, uh, whether it's a crankbait or a bladed jig. It, and anymore, it brought thoughts to my head to when I pick up a spinnerbait, about 110% of the time, I'm not throwing that spinnerbait unless there's something to bump it off of dock posts, down trees, pad stems, something that I can get it to kick to the side, like you said, and that's when you get almost every single strike. And, and, and that's a good example of a moving bait, but also coming in contact with cover, not necessarily bottom, but it could be the bottom. Yeah, and you can do the same thing with a bottom contact bait. Like if you're dragging a jig, for example, and you come up to something and that jig absolutely stops, there's times you pull up over that slow. But a lot of times I'll pop that thing off that target to get it to jump up in the water and then fall. And a lot of times I'll bite that thing when it relaxes down. So you're really doing the same deflecting type thing, but it's with a very slow bait. And there's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, there's, there's just, you really have to let them tell you what they want. And I think the people that get, and all of us have so far to go on all these baits. That's the awesome part about fishing. We, we think we know a little bit and we realize there's a lot more we don't know all of us. But when I think people that get really good and I would even say this is cadence is probably the wrong word, but the presentation of bottom contact baits really separates a lot of anglers because most people, when they throw a 10 inch worm or a three eighths ounce jig fish it the same way where there's about 10 ways to fish that three eighths ounce jig. And I'm talking about after it gets to the bottom and it's huge. And here's another bait that really falls into both the swim jig. I would argue one of the most lethal bass baits of all time. If you're not throwing it, throw it uh, because you can catch them a year round with the thing and you can fish it as a bottom contact bait or absolutely it's one of the best moving baits of all time. Yes, and, and you got to add uh, just any kind of small jig to that. Ned Riggs, Senko, I've caught them where they're picking it up on the drop. They'll pick it up off the bottom. Sometimes the best thing you can do is throw it out there and do nothing, and they do. They want it off the bottom. And, and the Ned Rig, too, I, my, many guys uh, work that back where they never let it hit the bottom. But there are times if you uh, get into the grass and you snap it through there, like you're talking about different ways to use a 3-8 ounce jig, you know, snapping it, dragging it, shaking it. There are so many things things, making it loud. The, the, uh, it, it's endless uh, ways you can rig it and use it. And sometimes the, the thing that makes us get bit or not get bit is such a minute thing. It, it, but you have to recognize it and you have to figure that out. 
it is amazing and that's the fun of it it does apply to all species you know you talk to some people that uh I'm lucky enough to associate myself with in this industry who are tremendous walleye fishermen. I'm certainly not one of them. Uh, but talking to some of these guys, they're talking about how they're making little tiny changes on a crankbait or even even pulling a bait like on lead core or trolling on a planer board or whatever. I mean, my good friend, God rest his soul, Tommy Scarless, used to tell me he could detect the cadence of a crankbait through a planer board on his rod tip. Hmm. Things, things like that blow my mind, you know. So it does it does apply to all species, moving baits and bottom contact baits. And, you know, there's a ton of research we can do on them, but it's really important to understand both categories. We don't want to get so myopic that we're just throwing one thing or we think because it's a bottom bait, we've got to fish it slow and drag. It's not not the case at all. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that determine that and color, too, you know, but it's important to just understand as much as we possibly can. But to your point, the most important point is if you're not getting bit, it might not be the bait. It might be the way you're fishing it. So mess around with that first before you make a change, whether it's speeding it up or banging into stuff or popping it off the bottom or whatever. It can be a little thing like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's no right answers 100% of the time. And if nothing else, hopefully we get people thinking about things and, and remember these segments and say, hey, I'm going to do this a little different. I'm going to do this, uh, you know, try different things. And uh, once again, we're out of time, but I uh, always appreciate uh, having you on the podcast, Dan. Dave, always my pleasure. Excellent. That was Dan Johnston. I am Dave Cran. Steve Sarley is remote. And this segment was brought to you by St. Croix, the best rods on earth. The We Fish ASA podcast will be right back. Probably one of the number one questions I get, you know, what line do I use? That's a big debate. For every tour out there, everybody's debating. Which line? I choose the simple side. My choice of line is Sunline. And my favorite lines to use is Sunline. How all can you use it? Anywhere you want to. Anywhere there's water and bass, it's good. Walleye, catfish, trout, speckled trout, sharks. There we go. Uh, I don't say this unless I think it's true, but honestly, it's the best in the market. The outdoors is more than just a profession for us here at Big Rock Sports. As avid anglers, hunters, and outdoor enthusiasts, it's our passion. So advocating on behalf of the outdoor sporting goods industry is a top priority for us. Big Rock Sports is proud to serve as the voice and advocate of outdoor sporting goods retailers across the nation. Big Rock Sports works tirelessly to protect our fisheries and anglers' rights. Big Rock Sports, we are here for you. Rule your water. Rule it with a St. Croix rod. Whether you take to the lake, wade the rivers, or cast from shore, St. Croix provides responsive performance, ensuring your success below every surface. With a St. Croix rod in hand, you're a part of a celebrated tradition that has spanned 70 years. Touch, power, and control are right at your fingertips and extend to you the finest fishing experience on the planet. St. Croix, the best rods on earth. Welcome back to the We Fish ASA podcast. I am Dave Cran. Steve Sarley is remote, and this segment of the We Fish ASA podcast is brought to you by Calcutta, an outdoor company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. My next guest, as all the guests I have on this, I say they all have a passion for the outdoors, and he certainly does. He is a Hall of Fame angler, a writer, an educator, a guide, and uh, my friend, Spence Petros. How you doing, friend? Pretty good. Pretty good. Well... 
Glad to have you back on. You've been on before quite a few times with us. But, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of young people that uh, seem to be gravitating to our industry because they're getting into this because of tournaments in high school and tournaments in college. And even the ones that don't end up fishing end up in this industry in rep groups and writing and and, and different things. But uh, um, how did you get started in this industry? Well, it um, really came by accident. I was fishing, fishing news uh, before Fishing Facts magazine. It was a newspaper, and I was fishing. I've been fishing all my life since I was two years old. And then uh, they would they would get stuff from various people that would send things in. So I started writing some stuff, mostly about river fishing, which was my forte back then. <coughs> and then it started uh, getting bigger and bigger, and it went into a magazine format in February of 1970. And they started growing, and uh, basically they offered me a job as a uh, managing editor of, you know, I was always fairly good in English in school, and uh, I guess out of the all the writers we had, I was one of the better of a bunch of bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much it. So, well, that, that's not like, a, or, or, you know, Hemingway or anything, it's just that I probably made more sense. And one thing I could do, is I was a good teacher. I, you know, I did A, B, C, D. I didn't go from A to D to Z to jump around. I, I had a good knack for just laying things out in a progressive manner that you could understand. So then uh, it was August of 1973. I went into the magazine full time. And then from there, just other things started to happen. I had my fishing classes in Chicago for Chicago area, mostly the suburbs, for 41 years. I did trips take groups to Canada, take groups to Louisiana, did a lot of seminars from New York to Las Vegas. And just, you know, more and more opportunities opened up and took advantage of things. If some didn't work out as well, to let them go and jump on something else and did probably well over 100 television shows. We had our show on ESPN for four years, The Outdoor Writers, with a good friend, um, Chad Huzar, Tony Porton Queso, and L spires and so I mean just different things start happening. You start jumping around, taking advantage of this and that. But things are a lot different now too, you know, because now you got so much of the internet is such a focus now. You got some of these people that are just so internet savvy that can cut a lot of corners and promote themselves pretty good. Before it was you didn't really promote yourself that much. It just other people did. You know, it was more like a good old boy system. You know, I fished with Berkeley Bedell, I fished with uh, you know, Carl Lawrence, I fished with all the, the guys that started these companies, all the people that were the heads. Now you got a lot of beam counters that how many impressions can you give me and what about this and what about that? So it's a different world right now. But what I would say is, you know, you got to get a start. And you can start off just writing for some local publications. Uh, you know, like um, Midwest Outdoors or All My Sportsmen or Wisconsin Sportsmen or something like that. Just, you know, what you know. But, you know, to do that, you better go to school, learn a little bit how to write. Wouldn't be a bad idea to take a photography class, um, and, you know, plus all the computer stuff. And then, and then just go from there. Then how much of it, how good are you? How much is the passion? How good are you promoting yourself, making some good contacts? It starts off slow, and, you know, it can grow from there, and depending, it's like anything else, how bad you want it. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, how, how much work you want to put into it. And uh, I like that uh, you said you were pretty good at educating. I've, I've been in the uh, Chicago area suburbs uh, in the tackle world since 1981. And I heard that from so many of my customers that they had gone through the classes and how much they learned. And, and every year they would go back, many of them, and, and learn something new or learn something else or be reminded of something that you taught them from three years ago that they forgot. They did, they just kind of let it go by and they, they maybe did it that first summer and then they let it go by. But uh, yeah, I think being an educator is... Uh, um, definitely your forte, and definitely heard that from many, many, many people. And uh, and that's the same thing with the magazines. I know I read, uh, you know, the covers off of my my Fishing Facts magazines. I I had I had many, many of copies, and I still have many from the seventies. And uh, and uh, it was uh, you know something you just looked forward to getting because you could learn from somebody like you. And and even though they made me. You said they you were the best of the writers. Their their content was good. I think you you framed it better for them. But um, you got you had a lot of good people writing for that magazine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had some one guy in particular. It was I me my three times every sentence, and his pictures were horrible. And three quarters of his fish pictures were mine because he was taking stuff with Polaroids and bad pictures. And I'm not mentioning names, but now he's you know. Big time, everything is doing good. It was just a young guy starting off, and I helped him, and he's one of my best friends. Yeah. So so we all helped each other. We all learned. We're all on the same course. You know, whether it was Roland Martin or Bill Dance or Jimmy Houston, we're all in this golden age when all these breakthroughs start coming through with Buck Perry at the the top of the pinnacles, you know, teaching the structure fishing. And in spite of what they say, and I'm sure if you get them aside, you get some of these old guys that have been around the names I've mentioned. And they got, a, they got a lot of that structure information from the Buck Perry kind of stuff and fishing facts that really helped them on the tournament trail in the beginning to get started. So, I mean, he was the guy that gave you a game plan, you know, and that game plan, I've gone up to the Arctic Circle and tweaked it a little bit and still works. I've gone down to the Amazon and you see that one big tree on the, on the bend of the river. And you think, well, you know, that outside bend of the river's got the deeper water and that big tree's got the cover and you go in there and catch a giant peacock bass, but it's the same thing. It's just you have to adjust it to where you go and the species you're after and, you know, that type of thing. So it's it's there. The basic is there, you know, and it's just a matter of learning it, applying it, and there's no real shortcuts. I mean, now people learn a lot quicker. You know, you put your chip in there, you can go to the Lake of the Woods and go through a place it took me two years to find around <laughs> these islands. A couple of rocks now and just put a chip in there and zip right through it. So the learning curve is much easier now. And back in the day, I'd say in the 70s, you know, most of the good fishermen in the area, we knew them. I mean, there wasn't that many. You know, there was this guy was good in Pennsylvania. This guy was a key guy here. This guy was good here. And, you know, it was, it was, it was like a circle of guys that knew. It. Then it just spread. And spread more and spread more. You had more people come into the fold and give out more information. And now it's you know it's way better with the, the high school fishing team. Now you see some of these young kids, and they're really good sticks. You know, they're, they when I fished in the Bassmaster Classic as a writer for you know, three or four different times, and you know, quite frankly, some of the guys I was fishing with, they weren't as good as the guys I was fishing with back home. I mean, some of them obviously were. I fished with Roland and. You know some of those other guys, but uh, you know it was it was a good, good head start to fishing. Facts magazine was the first thing that really taught fishing. It wasn't escapism. It was 
what to do under these conditions, how weather and water affects movements of fish. And, you know, once you got that ingrained in your head, you can go anywhere and just tweak things a little bit one way or the other, and, and it's going to help you a lot. It was the golden age. It was, it was good. We'd read stuff in the magazine and couldn't wait till spring to try it out. You know, sometimes it worked, sometimes we're jumping a gun and trying some deep water structure in May, which was not the time to do it. But eventually it all come together and you know, it worked out good. Yeah, it was, the, it was the paper version of today's YouTube. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if you listened and you, you read it and reread it, and yeah, you talk about Buck Perry, I did, uh, I did the spoon plugging. I did that because to learn the structure and learn how, how, where those edges were and then, you know, wore the cover off my Lunkers Love Nightcrawlers book. And, you know, it was uh, all the things I learned. It was, uh, it was great to do, and I, I certainly... Uh, was taught by many of the articles that, that you wrote. I never did attend your classes. I was always working seven days a week, and I didn't do it. But, I, you know, I wish I would have, but I did uh, definitely read articles and uh, on top of articles. And then uh, I think the first time that we had, uh, that I met you and recognized you was, uh, we didn't know each other, but I was putting in on Lake Geneva in Williams Bay, and I believe you were fishing with Carl Maltz, and you were coming off. You guys were getting done. We were getting there about 4 in the morning. You were leaving, and you already had caught some smallmouth and, uh, I believe, a walleye and a pike, and, and you said, oh, you missed it. You got to come You got to come earlier, and we thought we were getting there early, you know, And uh, but then uh, when I, I did meet you in 1981, and you, you were going to fish the river, the Fox River at the Algonquin Dam, and I believe you were taking a granddaughter and going carp fishing. Yeah, I took two granddaughters, you know, and it was, um, actually it was Algonquin. Yeah, we just took the kids out, and we were just catching carp on dough balls with slip sinkers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had been reading all your articles, and here Spence Pichos walks through my door at my tackle store, and, and you're, you're looking for uh, Vando carp bait, and, and, uh, and uh, egg sinkers or something, and I'm thinking, man, you going for walleyes? No, I'm fishing for carp. So that kind of that that shocked me. But uh, yeah, but yeah, it was that was the first time I'd actually met you, and, and uh, we've known each other for a long time now, uh, uh, decades since then. But the uh, it, you know it, it's just been been fun, and uh, you know I, I see recently that you've you've got on the uh, the Facebook, and uh, people can look for you there, and they can still learn from it, can't they? Yeah, I joined the 21st century a couple of days ago. I got on Facebook, and I just, I don't even still not sure how it works. I said put a one report about on there already, and then I'm doing into this learning to fish um, website and muskies for muskies 411. So I'm contributing articles to that, and then I'm putting stuff on Facebook and give me something to do in the winter time. But because I was doing a newsletter, but it ended up costing me 250 bucks. Every time I send out a newsletter, it was basically just saying hi to people and right. getting fishing reports. So I wasn't really getting anything out of it. So the guy, the, the internet guy, said, "Well, why don't you just do this? You can be out there and be a lot more current. You can get stuff on there. It won't cost you nothing." I said, yeah, "That's that's good." Yeah, yeah, so I, I think it's a, a great. Lot of people, I want to be friends now too. I mean, every day I do a whole bunch. Of oh yeah. Nope, I think it's a great idea, and, and glad to see you there, and uh, definitely uh, follow and like it and share it and all that stuff. And it's uh, it is a good way uh, today to get get to know people. But uh, well, I uh, we're we're up against the clock here, but I definitely appreciate your time as always, and I, I'm sure it won't be the last time that we talk to you, Spence. Well, I hope not. I'm alive. I'll do it again. Excellent. <laughs> that's that's a good goal to have. Thanks, Spence. Yeah. All right, thanks, Dave. Yeah. Talk to you. 
That was Spence Petros. I am Dave Kranz. This segment of the We Fish ASA podcast was brought to you by Calcutta, an outdoor company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. We will be right back after these messages. The outdoors is more than just a profession for us here at Big Rock Sports. As avid anglers, hunters, and outdoor enthusiasts, it's our passion. So advocating on behalf of the outdoor sporting goods industry is a top priority for us. Big Rock Sports is proud to serve as the voice and advocate of outdoor sporting goods retailers across the nation. Big Rock Sports works tirelessly to protect our fisheries and anglers' rights. Big Rock Sports, we are here for you. Calcutta, we're an outdoor coastal trading company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. Born in the back of a Florida bait and tackle shop, Calcutta was created with a rebellious spirit and a goal to offer hardworking outdoor products at a reasonable price. Calcutta builds the products that fit your lifestyle. We're on a mission to help you reclaim your free time and to declare mutiny on the mundane. Depend on Calcutta gear and apparel. Bass anglers have heard it all when it comes to manufacturers having the best casting reel. Well, Daiwa can back it up with the Tatula SV. The Tatula SV has three key features that make it the most versatile casting reel on the market today. The SV spool is a lightweight aluminum spool allowing for long control light lure casting. MAG4Z gives you the option to set a precise casting range no matter what lure or wind situation. The Daiwa T-Wing system reduces line angle and friction when casting. Distance, control, and finesse like no other reel on the market. Petula, the ultimate finesse long cast system designed by Daiwa. Welcome back to We Fish ASA. I'm Steve Surley. My partner Dave Kranz is remote. We Fish ASA is brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association. Folks, please help to ensure the future of fishing by visiting keepamericafishing.org. It only takes a couple of seconds. Appreciate your help. And you know, if you're an industry professional, please consider joining the American Sport Fishing Association by visiting them at asafishing.org. Here is one of the young superstars in the sport of fishing. Uh, I've known this guy for a while now, and uh, he's about as good as it gets. I don't care if you're after walleye, muskie, bass, trout, carp. Uh, he catches them all, and it's documented because you see this guy all over social media, all over television from the Linder organization and Linder's Angling Edge and all of their other many enterprises. Please welcome Mr. Jeremy Smith. Hey, Jeremy, how are you? Well, good. Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah, that was quite the exaggeration you just threw out there and all the stuff I've accomplished out there. <laughs> you, you know, if, if, I, if I just mention everything that you've appeared on uh, or written for, uh, they've been on uh, uh, social media or, or the internet for the Linders, that'd be the whole show. Uh, they still, they, you know, they've been doing this for such a long time, you kind of figure it's time to start slowing down. They just keep adding to the empire. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is, it's just like fishing is, it's passion, right? You know, the Linder family just loves fishing. It's in everybody who works here. It's in, it's in our blood, so... Anytime we've got an opportunity to do a new project that's uh, around fishing, we're, we're gung-ho to do it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and I, I would be remiss to, to let this go by without uh, saying how much uh, we all miss uh, Ron Linder, who uh, passed away earlier this year. 
and uh, one, one of the uh, true tragedies. I, I miss the guy uh, and think about him often. Yeah, yeah, what, a, what an icon in the industry, and it's a lot quieter around here now. Um, and we don't get all the, the buzz, the news. Ron always had his, his uh, ear to the ground listening what was happening. He was always just so anxious to, to share any gossip that he had in the industry, and just, just so much fun, just a great, great character and an icon in the sport, and he is dearly missed. I, I just read something on the internet, and it was, I believe, it was Brett McComas from uh, Target Walleye uh, moved his stuff into Ron's old office. He did, yep, he, he did. So, I, I can't, yeah, Brett's a nice guy, but I can't believe he wasn't scared to death that a, a bolt of lightning wasn't going to come down from the sky and just take him out for sitting in, in, in Ron's office. Well, well, Ron really liked Brett. He, obviously, the Target Wall idea was a thing he started later in life and, and you know, enjoyed it. So um, I think I think he'd be happy that his space is getting used and they can make a good fishing content out of it. So. I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was cool. I I, I knew I knew Ron uh, uh, Ron really well, and uh, we'll miss uh, getting together with him and, and talking with him because he was unique and obviously he, he loved the sport. He loved education. Uh, we had a number of conversations about the the, the high school and, and kids fishing, and and he was so towards that and talking about wanting to make it accessible for everyone. Uh, he he, he was. Truly an inspiration and a lot of funny things. Uh, some of the the best stories involved, Ron. You know, Al's, everybody sees Al all the time. And Ron was certainly more behind the scenes, I guess. You had to look for Ron a little bit harder. But uh, listening to, to, to James and, uh, and Al talking about being in the boat with Ron and some of the quirks he had, I, I just laughed so hard. I wish I could have had... Uh, uh, the opportunity to experience some of uh, underwater time with Ron. He had to be a hoot. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he truly was uh, was a beauty. This time of year, we we uh, musky fish with uh, um, live bait in the fall, and he always, even in his later years, loved loved going on a trip like that, all bundled up. And he was always giving you tips on what color bobber to use. The white bobbers are the ones that really get the bites, boys. You're using the wrong color bobber. So, <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. There was always a a trip and to go on sturgeon fishing in the fall. He 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 claimed himself to be the sturgeon general. So that was, you know, just, the, just the fun stuff that uh, you know Ron brought that that stuff to the office. It was great. Oh my goodness! I, I know. I, I'll, I'll I'll I I hope my computer hard drive never blows up because I've got two shows recorded. Where uh, one I, we were going to have James on as the guest and. I called James, you know, just before the show, like I, I called you, I said, hey, James, we're ready to go. Are you okay? He goes, hey, I got two guys in my car. Uh, do you mind if they chime in or would you prefer that they be quiet and it's just me? I said, well, who are the guys? He goes, well, L. L. Linder and Ron Linder. I said, you know, I'd be quite happy if they wanted to pipe in any time they wanted. I think it would be a plus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and he said, "Okay, fine." He goes, uh, "He goes, uh, Dad, uh, uh, Dad, Uncle Al, you know, I got Steve on you. Talk all you want." And and that was the last word I heard James say in the next thirty minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah. They they just co-opted the show and ran with it and 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 stole all of James' time. And, and, and I love James. And and Ron was always Ron was always like that. He said uh, uh, one time I, I had an interview lined up with Ron and we're getting ready to start. And he says, "Hold on a second, Al, get in here, sit down." <laughs> he says, "And they hear Al going, yeah, okay, what is it?" He goes, "I got Sarley on the line. I'm doing an interview. Why don't you help me out?" 
And he said, oh, Steve, how you doing, buddy? I go, oh, my God, I got Alan and Ron at the same time. I wasn't planning on that. And and, and I thank Ron for uh, for putting that stuff up. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, and I, this is your interview, not mine. One of, one of my most tense moments in life, I got asked to speak at the uh, uh, National Professional Anglers Association meeting a couple of years ago. And I've got my you know PowerPoint set up, and I'm ready to go, and got a, a decent crowd in there. All of a sudden, I look up, and in walking slowly in the door, and sitting in the last row is Ron Linder. And I, I, I can speak in front of crowds; I don't have a lot of problem with that. But man, I was nervous, you know. Oh, sure. And, and Godfather. And afterwards, I said, "Ron, what the hell are you doing in here?" He says, "I wanted to know what you had to say." I said, that's great. Did 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 you enjoy it? He goes, yeah, you did. You did pretty good. I, and I had to give the I had to give it a couple of times. He says, I'm going to censor the next one too, and I may help you out a couple of times. All right, fine. Why don't you just come up front and help me out? <laughs> hey, I was sweating bullets. It was unbelievable. But that's uh, uh, you know that that's like uh, you know being a little league player and, and and having a dream that you're playing shortstop for the Yankees in the playoffs. You know. Oh my goodness, oh. How, how do you overcome that? Right, right. What a great deal. That's an awesome story. And there's lots of those like that. Oh, oh so cool. So R cool. Ron, Ron, Ron was absolutely the best. I, I miss him every time I think about him, which is all the time. I think about Jeremy Smith a lot, too. Uh, tell the people, you know, you are, uh, oh, you'll argue with me on this. I say you're the new face of Linder Media, Linder's Angling Edge. Uh, that's probably something you'd back off of, but I, I think there is some truth to it. Well, you know, we, we just, we've got so many different projects going in so many different directions and, and, uh, you know, it just, uh, it may, maybe it appears that way, but you know, Al and James and myself end up taking on the, the majority of the, the content that, that we do. So, uh, just in that nature, yeah, you see, you see the three of us primarily doing a lot of the shows and What's great is we all, you know, there's things that, uh, you know, Jimmy really, we, that we all love all different fishing species, but, you know, Jimmy really, really loves bass fishing. That's definitely his forte. Not that he doesn't want to get on a hot crappie or a carp bite or a musky bite or walleye bite or whatever. And, you know, Al kind of takes a lot of the smallmouth and the walleye stuff and I end up on the muskies and this and that and the panfish. And so we end up just doing a lot of different things and it, it, it's fun. But this year... Um, you know, we'll do about 65 different television programs. And so when you, you think about that, I mean, that's more than doing one show per week. And then on top of it, we've got a bunch of YouTube content. We've got uh, commercials to build. So there's a lot of different different stuff. So we're in the field uh, all the time producing all kinds of different different content. Oh, it's, it's humble. And I know you all love catching fish. Uh, I have made the mistake of talking to Alan and mentioning the word carp, and, and he can talk for hours about fishing for carp, and he gets so excited and animated. I go, you think this was all the guy fished for? But no matter what you talk about with a lender, they're excited to put big fish in the boat. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all kind of have that same philosophy that really any sport or any fish can be a can be a great sport fish there's that there's the challenge involved with learning you know everything about the nature of the fish what they bite where they live how to catch them under certain conditions so um carp believe it or not are one of those things i think i know al's gone through that phase jimmy's gone through that phase i have too where you know trying to get on carp consistently you, you take a season and really try to become a good carp fisherman you realize how 
humbling it, it can be. I mean, everybody's caught plenty of carp and you think they're a trash fish and then all of a sudden you say, well, why don't you go out and try to catch a whole bunch of uh, carp in a northern natural lake in, in Minnesota and other than spring, where the heck do you find them? How do you catch them? This, that, the other thing. And there's a, they can prevent, uh, present some huge challenges. So it's the challenge that every, everybody, you know, enjoys. So it's, we've all had those phases, got through that experience of whether it's carp or catfish or crappies or whatever and kind of settle into what you really enjoy doing but any fish that you target is going to give you some experience that you can apply to another fish or you can take experience you learn from another fish and apply that to a presentation for something different i think having that uh, diversity of experience in fishing for so many different things just makes you a little more rounded angler yeah, that's, that, that is interesting it's, it's funny. when you talked about uh james likes bass al likes alex wallace or whatever it, it, it is funny because I'd like to think you guys all like catching everything, but there is some discrimination amongst the species. I, I, I saw Jimmy a couple of years ago say, hey, James, I'm, I'm thinking of be passing through uh, your way in October, and I figure, you know, maybe there's a possibility of hooking up with you or, or Ron and getting out for a morning, you know, while, while I'm through. And uh, and James says, yeah, you know, we we've got so many, so many of us. You know, somebody's going to be able to get you in. We'd lo- we'd love to we'd love to get you out. And I says, you know, if you guys can't, I could probably hook up with Tom Newstrom. And James' face just turned. He looked at me. He goes, Oh, what do you want to do that for? Then you're going to be stuck having to chase walleyes. Why would you want to? <laughs> why would you want to do that? I, I don't know. Fishing for walleyes with Tom Newstrom. That's a bucket list item. And James made it sound like I was going. So a pay lake that catch rainbow trout on pieces of cheese, you know, <laughs> unbelievable the way you guys think. Did, did you ever figure out the carp? Is there, is there a carp formula or does it fit into the whole Lindner program that was developed in the uh, in fish days? Well, I mean, it really does. So, yeah, I mean, the, the carp thing, you know, you, you kind of learn that it. it there's all kinds of little idiosyncrasies with it, but they can get just really tuned in. I mean, one of the things that we found was like, there's just certain places and, you know, we haven't done it enough, but where the things just bite. Like if we fish a lot of the lakes in the Dakotas, we can sight fish for them throwing hair jigs. We Sometimes we'll even catch them on hard baits. Um, obviously fishing with corn or worms works really good, but those fish just seem to respond even to artificials where a Lake Moax, for example, has some of the biggest carp I've ever seen. And really, as, as much as we've tried when they get out of the flats in the summer, you know, throwing tiny little bug imitation things and, and trying to catch them on corn or worms, they're, they're nearly impossible to catch other than a short window um, in the spring. So we've, we've kind of learned some some things, and there's some things that you just realize, like uh, the carp on Moax, Jimmy and I, and Al, we've all kind of done that. We realize that that's just one of those nuts we can't we can't crack. We've got a couple windows in the spring to catch those giants, and then they just become a little more difficult. But if you want to go catch big carp, boy oh boy, you head over to the Webster, South Dakota area, and you can go look at carp swimming in three feet of water and throw a hair jig in front of them, watch them dart over and grab it, and you're hooked up with a 25-pound fish. It's pretty cool. You know, it's funny because you said uh, um, uh, a Millax, and I, I bet you I could make a couple of phone calls and, and, and line you up with a half a dozen people and say, carp do not live in Millax. There are no carp in Millax because they've never caught one. They've never seen one. They're not particularly paying attention, especially in spring when they're spawning. You can't get away from them. Uh, but there are people who say that they don't exist there, and, and every lake has them just about. I don't know anybody of water doesn't have a carp swimming in it. 
Yeah, uh, you know, we're kind of on the northern edge of their range here. So like Mille Lacs has them, a few of the other lakes in, in Brainerd have them. But once you start to get, if you're familiar with the geography here, once you start to get north of like Pine River, they, they really disappear. But, but, you know, south of us, like you're saying, I mean, they're, I can't think of many lakes that don't. I, that's what I grew up fishing for was carp, you know, in southern Minnesota. And they're all over down there. They're just. You know, nothing to matter with that. I need to take a real quick break. Uh, we're going to come right back on and get to this. Jeremy Smith from Linder's Angling Edge, Linder Media with us. Very proud to have him on. I'm Steve Sarley. This is We Fish ASA, and I will be right back with more Jeremy Smith. You know, when I look at the tournaments I've won, probably four or five of the boats that I've won have been on a tube. But I had completely gotten away from flipping a tube because nobody, nobody made one soft enough. Big Bite has come with this new tour series of baits. The thing that's probably the most unique is when you look at that bait, the salt just rolls out of it. And to me, that is the reason a fish bites a tube and hangs on to it. This isn't one of those, let's go out and catch some smallmouth tube. This is a let's get it done tube. Bass anglers have heard it all when it comes to manufacturers having the best casting reel. Well, Daiwa can back it up with the Tatula SV. The Tatula SV has three key features that make it the most versatile casting reel on the market today. The SV spool is a lightweight aluminum spool allowing for long control light lure casting. MAG4Z gives you the option to set a precise casting range no matter what lure or wind situation. The Daiwa T-Wing system reduces line angle and friction when casting. Distance, control, and finesse like no other reel on the market. Petula, the ultimate finesse long cast system designed by Daiwa. The St. Croix story has evolved over 70 years. With gritty determination, St. Croix built the most advanced fishing rod facility in the world. And with it, a world-class brand that has earned the respect and admiration of anglers around the planet. We will continue to challenge ourselves, our employees, and our partners to be the best every day. We're proud to celebrate 70 years of passion and commitment to making the best rods on earth. St. Croix. Welcome back to We Fish ASA. I'm Steve Sarley. My partner Dave Kranz is remote. We are brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association. I'm going to skip all the rest of the stuff I usually say because I want to get into it with Jeremy Smith, uh, one of the most popular young guys around. How old are you now, Jeremy? Are you still a young guy? I, I, I am. I'm still real young. I'm only 42 years old, so so just uh, just hit my prime. 42 years old. Man, oh, man, that makes me feel even older than I am, which is ancient, but ne neither here nor there. You know, people, people don't realize everything that goes on. Wow, that Jeremy Smith, what a great job he's got. He hooked up with the Linners and... He gets paid to go fishing. He, they film him all the time. He's on TV. This is really a, a, not the major part of your job. You've got so much more that you do other than fish and smile at the camera. <laughs> it is, yeah. You know that, that's well. You know, I wanted to get into the fishing industry because I kind of thought that same thing. That's you know, that's where it is. You get to fish all the time, and believe it or not, fishing is um, it's a huge part of what we do. Obviously, but in terms of the day-to-day -day stuff it does not make up uh, as much time as you would think you know we're, we're a business so we're you know we're, we're always dealing with customers we've got a uh, product that we make you know a number of television series Linder's Angling Edge, Linder's Fishing Edge, Angling Buzz, uh, the Ontario Experience we do a series for Lund Boats called the Ultimate Fishing Experience so there's a lot of production work there's a lot of uh, planning and preparation and writing and 
and coordinating with all of those different series. And, and uh, so that takes a, a, a tremendous amount of time and, and organization to be able to, to pull those things off because it doesn't just work to go out and say, hey, let's go, let's go fishing today and just go catch some fish and make a show. They're all very, very well planned out. So it's all planned out around the time of year, what the fish are doing, what some of the newest techniques and products that uh, can you can use as tools to be more efficient at catching these fish. So we try to build a good story and some useful information into all of these, and that uh, that takes a lot of time. Oh, I, I definitely, definitely understand that. Hey, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, helping people get more fish in the boat, bigger fish in the boat. Now that we're into uh, mid to late October, uh, ice is coming faster than we'd like to believe it's coming. But it's the fall. A lot of people say, you know, the, the, all, the, all species of fish are bulking up for the winter. They're eating voraciously, and the easiest way to fill up is to hit the biggest uh, biggest prey that you can. Uh, fill up on big baits quick. So as fishermen, we should be using larger baits. And, and that is pretty much thought by everybody with a rod and reel in their hand that are out on water right now. Is that a hard and fast rule? Because I've heard people tell me there are some bait fish species that spawn in the fall and these the bait is small and the big fish are filling up on these tiny baits and you can be more successful depending on the water using small baits than big baits. What do you think of that? Well, you know, that's a, that, well, both work. Well, let's, just, let's just put it that way. I mean, angling is, a, you know, a, a, an experiment that's happening all the time. So, yeah, there's definitely something to, to big baits in the fall, but there's also something to big baits in the spring, and there's something to big baits in the summer. And there's also, uh, conversely, it's true with, with, with small baits. I just got back from a, a lake trout trip up in uh, northwest Ontario on the Manitou system. We were at the, the Manitou weather station, a place that I always wanted to fish. And kind of had in my mind, well, you know, there's some really nice trout in here. I'm going to pack a lot of, you know, five, six, seven, eight inch big plastics. I'll bring some bondy baits, hoping to catch fish like that. But th these fish were cued in on last year's Cisco's, any of the year Cisco's, which Cisco spawned in the fall. But uh, a, like a, a size number seven jig and wrap of baits that's like two and a half, three inches long was way, I mean, I mean it's not even the same universe as fishing something that was five inches long those fish the big fish were cued in on something very very small you know conversely if you were to go musky fishing a lot of times this time of year i just got back from eagle lake and the fish did not seem to want to respond to anything that was medium or even what you might consider large they wanted something that was just absolutely huge like the biggest thing that you could throw you could throw smaller stuff you'd think there were no muskies around you put something on that just about kills you to reel in and whoop, here come the giants. So, you know, it, it kind of depends on the fish, but it also depends on the fishery and what the most uh, prevalent forage is for any particular fish species. If there's an abundance of smaller shiners or young cisco, you know, in the fall, like even if they're only three inches long, that might be what all the walleyes, smallmouth, trout, everything, it might be eating those if there's less uh, large forage available. So... But obviously, if you're catching if you're catching them on a number seven now, how we the year ends and come around the next year, you're going to take a number seven out of your box in the fall again because that was what worked the year before. But that might not necessarily be the right choice. But you got to start somewhere, and you've got to base it on prior knowledge. 
You do. You have to have something that you're confident in. And, and you know, sometimes uh, if, if you just have extreme confidence in a bait, you might out, outfish some, something else, too. But, it, you know, we had a, uh, one of the guys in the boat was, he's really into, into hair jigs. And, and uh, so he had all these big lake trout hair jigs. And he could catch, you know, he was catching fish on these bigger baits, but it was just not even the, the same. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You really do have to have confidence and you got to start somewhere and then you make those adjustments from there. And the other thing I'll say about the fall is typically the fish are deeper. Most fish are, are, in, are in deeper water. And this is when, if you really want to get on fish, you want to have those days where you just wear them out. Electronics are so important. This is the time of year when they're absolutely the most important because you've got a big cone angle. You can drive around and you can look and look and look and look to find fish. So fall is a time too of consolidation. So many times in the summer, the fish you'll hit hit a bunch of points, and there's fish on every point. Where in the fall, you might go look at ten points, but only two of them have fish on them. The rest are void of fish. So electronics is a really big deal to find those concentrations of fish in the fall. It makes sense to me, and uh, uh, it's expensive, but you got to stay up with with this electronics. And uh, you know, invest in the uh, in the up and coming technologies. And I'm a big believer in if you if you've invested in electronics, invest in hiring somebody that's a master of electronics to go out with you for a morning in the boat and show you how to use it. Uh, it it's awfully rough to to figure this stuff out on your own. And if you're going to spend that kind of money, hey, go go all out and and and, and go for the education as well as the equipment. Oh, you're so right on that. So, you know, I'm kind of in that generation where, I mean, I got an email account when I was in college, so I'm somewhat familiar with technology, but I didn't grow up with it like, uh, you know, a lot of the kids these days, they know way more about it than me, but then you go a generation older and this stuff is is overwhelming. I mean, even when I jump in Al's boat and, uh, you know, it's constantly, he's going, you know, what is going on with this? What's going on with that? How does this thing work? I don't get it. You know, he's one of those guys that is so dialed that if you just gave him a flasher, he just has that innate ability to find fish. It's like he can smell them. And most people aren't like that. It's like he can just go find fish with a flasher. But when you do get this technology, don't spend thousands of dollars and think that you're going to push a button and turn this thing on and everything is going to work great. Look, there's so much good content on YouTube. Absolutely. Take the time to learn what what it does, how how it looks, how it works. Go out with somebody because... Once you know how to use it, they are, I mean, it is absolutely insane how much they can speed up the fish finding process. Oh, for sure. All right, it's, 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 it's fall, uh, shortly to be late fall, and I know this is an unfair question because there's so many variables, but if I'm out, want to catch a fall muskie, or you're, you're going out you're, uh, for, for a fall muskie, you've got your rod and reel, and, and I can only let you take one bait with you, in the boat, what's that bait going to be for muskie in the fall? Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of a tricky question. I guess I would have to choose a, 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 I would probably choose a crankbait just simply from a versatility standpoint that it's something that I can cast. I can, I can drive the bait down deep on a straight retrieve. I can twitch it back like a jerkbait or I can, I control it. So a bait like that just gives me a lot of versatility. So I, I really do like hard baits in the fall, just like in the springtime. If you were out fishing for walleyes right after the opener, it's pretty darn hard to beat trolling an original floating rapala. I don't know of a better lure in the spring for smallmouth than an, than an X-Rap. You know, and it's that 
those bookends of the season, cold water in the spring, cold water in the fall, it seems like hard baits, crank baits can really, really shine. I'm going to go off script, which is so likely for me to do in the course of 30 minutes of talking. But I've got it. We talked about size and we're talking about picking one bait. A number of years ago, I was interviewing uh, uh, Jim Sarek, you know, from Muskie Hunter Television and at the time Muskie Hunter Magazine. And, and we were talking about uh, Canada and, uh, uh, you know, people saying, oh, I, I saw a 60 inch fish. I saw a 60 inch plus fish. I can't get it to eat. He said, think about this, Steve, seriously. He says, you're throwing a, 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 the biggest bait you have. You know, say it's a, a, it's a, a pounder bulldog, you know, and, and you've got this big fish. He says, and you got this fish that's over 60 inches long, and if he's hungry, he can chase down and swallow up a seven-pound lake trout, uh, exerting the same amount of effort it takes to, to get that one-pound plastic bulldog. Why would he even be interested in your bait when he can fill his belly in one bite on a tasty big fish like that. Those fish are not interested in anything you've got in your tackle box because you're not carrying anything big enough to get their attention. And that's not a 100% rule. He said, but I think that's a pretty good guide point. What do you think about that? That's pretty shocking to me. Oh, oh, it is, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm just thinking about in my mustard career, like when the cowgirl came out, I thought, wow, that, that bait is huge. It looks weird. They want to eat something like that. Nowadays, they look at a, a, a double tens, a cowgirl, or something that's just kind of a regular size bait. When I've seen, you know, like even with the, the big 14-inch jakes and 13-inch grandmas were on the scene, and now the, the headlocks and the matlocks and all these big, huge crankbaits and, and big pounders and two-pound bulldogs. And when you see a big muskie uh, with one of those baits in its mouth, you go, well, that just looks like, uh, you know, a largemouth bass eating a half ounce jig. It's like, well, that's what, that's just what the, that fish would eat. I mean, it just looks like the natural size it would be in that fish's mouth. So I think Jim is absolutely right in the sense that you often can't fish with big enough lures to get those really, really big, big fish. And they're, they obviously want to be efficient. So if they're going to chase it down and they're going to eat it, often they, um, you know, they, they want something big. And again, that's not a hard and fast rule. I've caught giant muskies on tiny little, you know, caught huge muskies on a, a tiny little Mister Twister. So I'm not saying that sure, but we, you know, we it's, it's, we want to play we want to play the percentages, and, and it's 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 what you can do physically. I don't know if you could pull a, a lure, a cast and pull a retrieval lure that that imitated a seven pound lake trout. You know, I I get tired out in twenty minutes throwing that double cowgirl. You know, that's a, that's a that's a challenge for me. Uh, I know you know Billy Sandy from up in Canada. He had told me a couple of years ago he was. Car trying to carve lures out of the uh, bottoms of oars, you know, the, the paddle end of an oar uh, to imitate a fish because he needed a piece of wood that size to go after these plus 60s that he's seen and never been able to get the hit. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're throwing boat oars at muskies trying to get them to hit. They do want big baits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they do love those those giant baits. Uh, buddy of mine, Doug Wagner, did a video on YouTube I watched a couple of years ago, and he had a, I don't know who made the bait for him, but it was, um, I, mean, it was this, I forget what the bait was. It was like two feet long, and it was like four <laughs> inches wide, and it was like he, he used uh, truck fen fender material for the lip, and this lure was absolutely, you'd be happy to catch a fish the size of the lure, and I don't know what he was using to pull it around, but he got bit on it, you know, and it, it just goes to show you, like, even... We kind of joke, my, my son always looks, I've got one of the original 
uh, floating wrap was that the, you know the the display ones, the ones that are art, the huge giant lures in the garage. And he's always like, "Yeah, just thinking the muskie we could catch on that. We got to bring that fishing sometime." And you do kind of look at it and go, "Well, maybe if you're on Georgian Bay or the St. Lawrence River or one of these places in Northwest Ontario, who knows." A big one might just take a crack at it. Oh, that would that would be unbelievable, man! I cannot believe all the time is gone. We we need to do this again sooner than it's been since the last time. I enjoy having you on. You're one of the smartest guys in the business, and and we've got so many things that we could still be talking about. Uh, promise me you'll be back soon. I would love to. I'm always game for talking fishing, and I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on. This is a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Keep up the good work and. Hopefully we talk again soon. From Linder's Angling Edge, Linder Media, the one, the only Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. We'll hook up again real quickly. Thank you, guys. That wraps up this week's edition of the We Fish ASA podcast, the best darn fishing show on the radio or the internet in the entire USA. I'd like to thank today's guest. What an all-star lineup. Dan Johnston from St. Croix was on with Dave Krantz talking about moving bait versus bottom contact baits. Interesting subject. Spence Petros, Hall of Famer. Our friend Spence Petros talking about getting into the industry. And then Jeremy Smith. Man, he got into the industry in a big way. Jeremy Smith from Linder Media. What a great fisherman he is. I'd like to thank our sponsors. St. Croix, the best rods on earth. Calcutta, makers of a line of products that fit your fishing lifestyle and passion. Daiwa, they have what you need for every application at every price point. There's no reason not to use Daiwa reels. Don't forget, we've got your bass covered, Daiwa. Remember that We Fish ASA presents a new episode of our one-hour podcast each and every week. It's available everywhere, but don't forget to check out our website, wefishasa.com. While you're there, if you like what you hear, please let us know if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about. For someone we should have on the show, let us know that too. I'm Steve Sarley. My partner is Dave Kranz. We'll see you next week now. Let's go fishing. I'm professional angler Kevin Van Dam, and people always ask me, what's the best and easiest way to catch fish? Well, that's simple. Keep our waterways clean and free of litter. You know, tossing your worn out lures in the lake is not a winning move. Pitch them in the trash. Do your part and join me. Visit KeepAmericaFishing.org and pledge to pitch it.